Greetings. Welcome to the Think Tank Podcast. This is a rare treat for us, for us and hopefully for anyone listening. Yeah. Uh, it's a while since we've done this, so apologies if you've missed our dulcet tones in the last two weeks. Just been sitting around, really. Yeah, we've not been doing anything. Yeah. Um, but we'll try and do a few more of these uh, in the revision season, obviously, because that might be useful for everyone and fun for us. Um, and we've got a nice half hour ahead of us this morning. We're going to look uh, at the developments in the UK with Prime Ministerial Power and our Constitution and our Parliament after the recent uh, use of our military force in Syria, as well as talking about Theresa May's travails. Um, Theresa May? Theresa May, did I say? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's because you're thinking of the Daily Mail, aren't yeah. you? We're going to have a little reminiscence package on the 2017 election, which oh, was those, called... Those were the days. A year ago, I think. Crush the um, saboteurs. And then we're going to uh, have some tales from Trumpland. We've just listed... Eight different scandals that are going on in the last two weeks. In the last yeah. two weeks, uh, so we're going to try and work our way through those. Most of them involve people being paid off, <laughs> which is good. There probably will be a fire alarm noise uh, at some point during this um, morning, but yeah. don't, you don't need to leave the building, whatever building you're in. <laughs> don't let it confuse you. Don't let it confuse you. We're not going to leave this building. If we leave, it's because there's a real fire. Okay, um, and you'll hear our screams. Um, so right. Let's <laughs> Let's kick off. We'll have another bell. I've missed the sound of that bell. As has missed the bell, I'm sure. Because yeah. it is his bell. And which we took two years yeah, ago. Yeah, we've never given it back. Yeah. That's yeah, correct. I think that might explain a lot. Uh, right, so let's look in the UK then. So, um, in the last week or so, our Prime Minister um, has ordered the use of airstrikes in Syria, in, in, in the midst of the civil, uh, civil war in Syria. We're not going to, I don't think it's our place to get into a debate about whether we should or shouldn't have have used airstrikes, we want to talk about the, the political ramifications. Um, the first thing to say that's so interesting is that the Prime Minister has changed part of the Constitution just by launching airstrikes. So, but, but she hasn't really, has she? Yeah. That's the debate, isn't it? Has she changed or has she not changed it? Yeah, because that, she has changed it. Because that's 2003, Tony Blair asks Parliament to go to war with Iraq. Parliament votes overwhelmingly to go to war in Iraq. Uh, and then a new constitutional convention is therefore put into place. David Cameron follows it. Um, twice. Twice. Libya, Libya and, Syria. And Syria. Once he actually loses the vote in Parliament, doesn't do anything. So twice in Syria, Syria and once on Libya, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we have, so we have a new convention in our evolving... As one, one of our students, who I can give credit for here, did call it uh, our evolving constitution. He's nice. And now we can pretend that we came up with it. Well, I just know. I've just credited. Well, me. in future lessons, I'm going to do that. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, yeah. So, what's interesting here is that obviously Theresa May has claimed um, that it would obviously be to the detriment of our armed forces and to the detriment of um, the, the element of surprise and so on um, that if if the airstrikes had been uh, preempted by a parliamentary debate, uh, we've probably some justification for that argument, but it doesn't detract from the idea that. We've, we've, we've built that into our constitution as a convention, haven't we? So, um, obviously, what Jeremy Corbyn wants is a War Powers Act, like yeah, like sure what they have in America. Yeah. Um, so, they, they, they he wants us to have an actual act of parliament that says you have to do this uh, if you want to do that. But I suppose the point I would make is they have that in America, and American presidents still sort of do what they want. I know they have to, after two months, yeah. go back to Congress and get it funded or whatever, but they still sort of do what they want. It wouldn't have prevented... The American version wouldn't have prevented this. 
But well, the last time Congress officially declared war, as, was per, as per the Constitution, was 1941. So yeah. having a written Constitution doesn't necessarily yeah. clarify this because they've been having the same kind of debate in Washington, haven't they? But they have, but they have a War Powers Act, which basically says that I think it's 60 days the president has to go back to Congress for permission. Mm. Um, but yeah, Jeremy Corbyn hasn't said what would be in a War Powers Act, but presumably a War Powers Act in this country would force a vote in Parliament on any military intervention, whether I mean, that's what he wants. Didn't the actual Iraq War? thing, the actual bit war bit of it before they were in Baghdad I'm, sh- I'm pretty sure that lasted less than 60 days um, wow. so I would I be before Bush did his mission accomplished thing on the boat I'm not no, sure no, yeah, no, no, I mean no, we no. can find that out but I mean it wasn't many months no. so I mean, you but, in, a lot but, but both in the US days. and in the UK their respective legislatures voted overwhelmingly yeah. to go to war in Iraq didn't they, that's just mm. a fact it's it famously Students write again and again, not our students, obviously. Other no. students write again and again that Tony Blair went to war in Iraq without Parliament's approval, which is just false. It was huge backing. Was huge backing. Because both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party voted for it. But in, in this case, you're, you're suggesting, Mike, that she hasn't changed the Constitution. Well, she's not done anything wrong. In terms of legally, so a convention has no legal basis in British law. And the reason I can say that. It's because she can use the royal prerogative, which gives her the powers, to go to war in the name of the Crown. In 2015, the Supreme Court in the UK, on the Gina Miller case, on the Miller versus uh, the Secretary of State for Brexit, um, they stated that the Shul Convention was not legally binding. In other words, Scotland would not get a veto on the decision to leave the EU because the Shul Convention states that anything that happens in Westminster relating to Scotland should be debated in Scotland, they would have a say on it. And obviously, leaving the EU has an impact on Scotland. The Scots are against it. But the Supreme Court said, well, it's a convention. It's not legally binding. And it's the same thing goes here. It's the problem with our constitution is a convention is exactly what it says. It's a convention. We've done it because it's happened before, but it's not written down. And that's the one of the problems with it. Or it's the good thing that we can adapt depending on the particular situation. Yeah, right? and you're right. But when it comes to the decisions to go to war, surely that should be some clarity over that. We're talking about adapting things to suit as we go. Surely the decision to go to war should be a little bit more clear-cut than, or oh, hang on, I don't know, maybe, royal it's one, maybe it's the one area where it shouldn't be clear-cut because the, the situation each time is going to be so different. Well, that's what the Conservatives are saying, aren't they? Saying that we... It's important to you know we can't necessarily always debate things in the House yeah. of Commons because it might actually be but a threat it, but, to national okay, security. So it's interesting on the Prime Ministerial Power point of view, though, isn't it? Because Theresa May is, in all other senses, a really really weak Prime Minister. She doesn't have a majority. Um, she's got a, she's absolutely focused only on really Brexit rather than any domestic or other issue. Um, she can't sack cabinet ministers when she wants to sack cabinet ministers, um, and yet here she's she can just do this. And just do this without Parliament uh, or anyone else checking it. I mean, I've got two real questions, Oof. which are, <laughs> number one, there are a huge proportion of our constitution is convention-based. Yeah. Things like the fact that money bills are decided in the Commons and things like that. Whereas and the Conservatives were furious when they thought the House of Lords had, 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 had broken conventions on, their, on, on a money bill. So if we are just in a position where we can play fast and even constitutional conventions, that is a very strong argument that we should have a codified constitution is it not and because so so much of it is convention based and number two on a kind of um less academic basis i thought the whole point of brexit was to empower parliament 
I thought that I thought we were going to only when it suits that question. Yeah, yeah. I thought we I thought we were taking back control. I thought that was what was happening here. I thought the whole point was that Parliament was going to be sovereign again. It, and well, in, in this contract, it, it, it is a bit odd, though, in the sense that um, Parliament would have backed military action in Syria, yeah. wouldn't it? It would have done. Yeah. I mean, so I'm not. She could, she could have gone to Parliament. But they would have been able to surprise them. They were surprise bombs. Right, okay. It yeah. would have been quite interesting because it, from the Conservatives' point of view, cause it could well have split the Labour front bench with the rest of the party. Like yeah. it did last time because yeah. Hillary Benn ended up getting. Uh, so Shack, it, but so they were looking to play politics with it. They could have done so. Maybe they were actually. They said, "Well, we're going to put politics to one side. This is in the national interest. This is in, this needs to be done." Did you see the debate? And, and and did, hang on. I mean, yeah. one, one thing that is important is that, that they did have a, a kind of a vote. A symbol. Oh, oh, there you go. Stay where you are. Carry on listening. Oh, this is great radio. It's a great listening. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, it's so, different yeah. in your room than it is in my room. Yeah, it's a better noise. You do I get better her, um, I said, look, I want a better noise in my room. I'm going to ask for a song, song to get played. House. It's, it's oh, here, yeah, there they get their worst. But, the, sorry, uh, you were saying something very important. It probably was important. Yeah, so the, um, although there hasn't been a vote on military action, there's a symbolic vote in the debate, which, which the government won um, easily. So, you know, they, they would have won if they'd have had a vote. Um, and Theresa May was subjected to a debate. She did have to engage in a, in a parliamentary debate on the topic, um, even if she didn't have an actual proper vote on whether military action should be used. But I, I would still say legally, by the constitution, she's not done anything wrong. The no. problem is, the problem is conventions. They're conventions. They do not have any legal basis. Did you see the uh, the death stare that Theresa May gave one of the one of the Labour MPs when she said, "When did Ther- when did Donald Trump instruct you yeah. to uh, to launch missile strikes in Syria?" And I don't think I've ever seen a politician look so angry. Yeah, it was it was quite incredible. It seems to be Macron who was taking a lead on it, wasn't it? Wasn't yeah, it? he said that he, <coughs> he persuaded Donald Trump to do it. Uh-huh. Yeah, he said that openly, and I don't think Donald Trump will like that very much because I don't think he likes being seen as someone who gets persuaded. No, you mentioned the Labour Party and the split in the Labour Party. It is, from an ideological point of view, it is fascinating to watch, isn't it? That. The front bench of the Labour Party, or the Corbyn part of the Labour Party, with their real clear anti-war message, uh, and then those backbenchers who were really, really trying to embarrass Jeremy Corbyn in, in the chamber, mm-hmm. talking about Labour's long history of humanitarian intervention uh, in recent years in Sierra Leone and Kosovo, and then back in in, in, the, in the 40s and 50s and, and the foundation, foundation of NATO. NATO yeah. And and you know that you don't get on that on the Conservative side. That split is absolutely incredible in the Labour Party mm. you know backbenchers standing up jabbing the finger at the at the front bench that is highly unusual well Corbyn was asking for a UN backing knowing full well you're never going to get it because Russia's on the council and would would veto any UN action yeah so it's, it's totally disingenuous in it like completely. That. oh we want the UN we want the UN yeah of course you want the UN you but know the UN you know full well yeah. that can't happen do you know I'm glad we're not getting involved in a, a description of what's actually happening Oh, the number of in- interested parties in Syria is absolutely incredible. But th- can we just quash one one thing to our students? Don't don't say it. Is this? It's it's that thing? thing about no. It's the thing about we shouldn't we shouldn't start a war. I keep hearing people saying we shouldn't start a war in Syria. It's incredible. There's been a war for seven years. Yeah. Been, there, there literally is a war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Diane Abbott 
um, did something quite silly. She tweeted a picture. Oh, she yeah. said we shouldn't bomb Syria and tweeted a picture of an Israeli helicopter or plane, plane. Bomb, over like, dro- Tehran. dropping bombs over a particular re- uh, place. Uh, yeah, and and so it was a, it was a picture th- that implied that any UK bombs would be dropped on civilian areas. It was, it was or like, had been dropped on civilian yeah. areas and. People criticised her for it, and her, and her response wasn't exactly apologetic because it was a Photoshop. It was a Photoshop picture as well. It was an yeah. Israeli jet over Tehran in Iran, <laughs> which is just yeah. ridiculous. So she, so, so she tried to heavily imply that we as a country were bombing civilian areas. There's also that amazing woman at the protest, wasn't there? Who oh, she was incredible. That, uh, Assad can't be a bad man because he's a doctor. Which is correct. He can't be a bad man. And as we know, there are no historical examples of doctors being bad. Very good. Right, okay, so um, linked to that, though, it's been happening very much at the same time. This is a lot of a Prime Minister. Uh, We've had the scandal over the Windrush generation of Afro Caribbean immigrants in the 1940s and 50s, where it looks very much as if the Home Office has been deporting either some of those people or the offspring of some of those people or denying them services uh, with the NHS. is this, is this an example of when, when you're Prime Minister and things are going wrong, everything goes wrong and your authority is sucked out all the time? They couldn't have predicted this scandal for the, for the following reason. People are generally anti-immigration, but don't like specific examples of anti-immigrant pre- prejudice yeah. in the same way that they dislike politicians but like their local MP. So if you ask someone, should immigration be reduced, almost everyone says yes. It's one of those things that 75% of people will say, yes, immigration should be reduced. But then if you said, um, so for example, what about Afro-Caribbean people who weren't born here and have been here for 60 years and paid into the public uh, purse? Oh, no, of course not. Of course not then. Yeah. And so the all those individual stories that are absolutely heartbreaking, people who are reaching retirement age, they've been paying into national insurance for years and years, some people who have wanted to go back to Jamaica and, and, or something and, and try to get a new passport and and have just not been allowed to get yeah. one, and then have started being um, denied those things. And so, it's one of those. This is one of those examples of a, of a policy that was probably the government thinking. Well, we've had quite a lot of uh, elections where immigration is a salient issue. We've had Brexit where immigration was clearly a salient issue. We need to keep pushing um, immigration as a pol- policy. Yeah. Be quite strict on immigration, and well, then when they've done it. They've got it wrong. Well, there's a sense that um, there's a sense in the Commons debate on this that because the government have promised to reduce immigration, but finding actual illegal immigrants is quite hard and expensive. Mm. That this was part of a, a way of ease, you know reducing immigration numbers, and it's not that difficult to do. Um, but the thing that was most striking for me um, is David Lammy, the MP. Is it Tottenham North? Yeah, yeah, yes, he is, yeah. Um, whose parents um, were one of the, not been affected by this, but they were some of the immigrants that came over in the 1450s, with an absolutely brutal speech in the House of Commons criticising the government. You lie down with dogs, you get fleas. Yeah, and it, it really struck me that you don't really get that in many parliaments around the world. An MP is able to stand up and hector and shout and cross-question and really go for the jugular with the government in front of them live. You know, if you think about the US Congress, the executive doesn't go there and be subjected 
to that kind of scrutiny. Whereas in ours, he just stands up, he says it, he does it, and and it, it was absolutely superb as well. Mm. Yeah, he, so the lie down with, to clarify, the lie down with dogs and get fleas thing for, for those listening is what David Lummy was saying was because the Conservative Party is trying to appease and appeal to people further right in UK politics who are more anti-immigration, um, that they have taken on a kind of nasty right-wing um, set of policies that are going to essentially tarnish the UK government and tarnish the Conservative Party. Can I ask a question? Right. Yes. Those Syria airstrikes are broadly unpopular with the public. This uh, Windrush scandal is uh, very unpopular with the public. Even the Daily Mail. Even the Daily Mail has been criticising the government. Why is Theresa May still Prime Minister? Because one year. It's now one year since the 2017 election, which she called in order to crush a the saboteurs yeah. and the Labour Party. That didn't happen. Mm. Um, everything that has happened since then, in many ways, has edged public sympathy towards the Labour position on many things. You know, if you think about this Windrush case, if you think about Syria, um, you know, the Corbyn position appears to be more in line with um, the, the public. You know, you go back a year ago to Grenfell, again, another example of sympathy moving in that direction. Why is she still there? I think there's, there's probably three factors for this. I think, number one, anyone who does want it in the Tory party doesn't want it now because they want someone else to deal with the mess of Brexit yeah. and so she's probably going to stay until next year with either transition or exit whatever the, the outcome's going to be uh, number two the <laughs> Corbyn I mean Labour is just not making the ground up on the Tories that you would expect the polls. I know we have to be careful with polls. The polls don't really show much of a change. There's they're no. All the same. They're all just 41, 42, 40, 41, 42, 40. The, the Conservatives ran one of the worst campaigns in living memory and still got 40 more seats than, than the Labour Party. So we de- I think we do need to question mm-hmm. Labour's leadership. And thirdly, I think Brexit is just changing the norms of politics, and that I think is still showing today. She's hanging on. Do we have hyperpartisanship now in the UK? We've talked about it a lot in America where we've got two distinct blocks who just won't vote for the other one. Um, and, yeah. and so, in a way, we've, we've got now, partially because of Brexit, you've got that kind of thing. Labour aren't even pro Remain, and Remainers vote Brexit, vote, Remainers, sorry, vote Labour because they don't want to vote Conservative. And, that, and it's one of those things that Labour could, could do a lot wrong. But look, now, loads of those Labour supporters will just not vote for the Conservatives in yeah. the current guys. And loads of those Conservative supporters will not vote Labour in their current guys. But, 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 but in Brexit. Parliament, it, the, the, the Labour Party is very, very split, isn't it? So hyperpartisanship requires both parties to act in a uniform mm-hmm. way. Don't they? But Labour aren't really doing What that. I'm talking about is actually the voters. The voters, I think the voters are acting in a, in a relatively uniform way. I think there is voter polarisation. I think you're absolutely right in that mm-hmm. regard. I think hyperpartisanship... We're not seeing the sort of behaviour we see in America. We don't see shutdowns. I know we don't get shutdowns, but we don't have blocking just for the sake of it. You know, the Supreme Court nominations, Merrick Garland. We don't have those sort of yeah. things happening. We can't because, have that though, exactly because our system can't make that happen. I think, I think the polling, um, and we never criticise polling, but the polling at the moment does reflect the actual general election. Mm. It does suggest you're right because the two main parties we've talked for about 20 years about the growth of multi-party politics and the mm. death of the two-party system. And yet, in last year's general election, both parties polled over 40% of the votes. Um, mm. So it does suggest that the voters are becoming more polarised. It's weird, though, because anecdotally, from my own experience, I feel like there's loads of lost voters in the middle. But yeah. that isn't really backed up by the data, is it? 
Um, and, Most you know, people aren't political, though, are they? But, no, but yeah. no, but then yeah, but then you think the Lib Dems would get you know one or two more votes, but they're not. You, they've not been in the news at all. What, out, is he, what is he doing? Since we've last done the podcast, the world and his wife have got their own podcast, haven't they? Nick Clegg's got a podcast. How do I not know this? Why am I not listening? Yeah. Vince Cable, is it, what's he what, doing? Jacob what, probably got on there. What was he doing? Modcast. Millerband. Mod, Mogmentum. The thing is, we were, we were there at the start, weren't we? Yeah. Yeah, but then we just forgot that. Um, yeah. Where were we then? Oh, yeah, polarisation. Yeah, so you're probably right, the voters are more polarised because we've got the two-party system I think, back, but... Mm. I think one thing that the referendum showed is that, generally speaking... Voters are either for or against something, especially when times are pretty hard. So economically, we're still not people's wages aren't still going up particularly well. I think most people don't feel that well off, yeah. and that was partially reflected in the referendum and then in the general yeah. election. And gen- and so it, you know, we talk in America about change or more of the same thing, and and I think sometimes that tends to be the, that, that tends to be the yeah. case. And right now. You've got people who want Brexit and also are, are relatively happy who support the Conservatives, and people who don't want Brexit or people who are unhappy who support Labour, and it, that's what's that's what's There's going also, on. Um, which we, we talked about before about um, the dividing lines in the election, and we talk about class as a dividing line. Sometimes we talk about occupation as a dividing line, or gender, or whatever. Uh, and one of the things that I read the other day was about how um, housing tenure is actually the biggest dividing line in, in an election between those who own their own home or, or, or have a mortgage mm-hmm. and those that are renting. Um, and in the last election, 2017, there was a lot of talk of a youth quake of, of big turnout amongst young people and big turnout for Labour, but that that's actually maybe a bit misleading. And in actual fact, it's, it's not so much about young people per se, it's about those who cannot afford to buy their own home and therefore rent, and those that can. And those that are, are renters... Are those people overwhelmingly going towards the Labour Party, overwhelmingly joining momentum, overwhelmingly backing Corbyn? Well, surely the way for the Conservatives to, to counter that is to sort out a housing policy which is coherent because the Conservatives have always been about wealth creation, security, and people get that by owning But, no, but that's not happening, is it? That's not happening. Whatever the, the economic situation means that that isn't happening. Um, which is a big problem for the Conservatives. Yeah, and they, they did talk after the election about needing to build houses and, and needing to. to, to uh, it's a facilitate that sort of that sort of housing growth but it's a very hard thing to overcome Thatcher's right to buy was a stroke of genius in the sense that it got people who were solid Labour voters to vote Conservative because they could become more economically secure how can a 30 year old who's rented all their life has no money become economically secure and own their own home mm-hmm. in, in, in London and in most major cities yeah. it's just not possible and, and of course, that's where you see the biggest growth in, in labour. And, and I'm going to come back to something I think I've said before: that of people under the age of 55, Labour won. Is that true? Yeah, wow. Labour won. Um, of uh, people who were basically voting age in 1990, I think was the was the was the fact. Uh, okay. so someone else said, it. I'm probably almost, I'm, I'm probably wrong, but there you go. <laughs> um, but. The point. The point is that it's it's very very hard for people for the conservatives to make to make that up. And the question, and again, the question becomes: Are those people just doing that that thing that has always happened, which is as you get older, you become more conservative? Yeah. Is that, or is it that actually there's a there's a, a tranche of people who are go at getting older 
and are also not economically secure yeah. who are going to undermine the Conservative yeah. position yeah. as they get older. Another another issue we were talking about just before the podcast, myself and Mr Thorne, that they kind of there is a a generation of Conservative MPs who are still in Cabinet, who uh, some of them are busted flushes, as Mr Thorne alluded to, uh, and Theresa May in her most recent Cabinet reshuffle didn't bring through, there's, uh, you know, the press talk about some of these bright young minds, these great policy brains in the Tory party, but then just not being given opportunities because they're deliberately being kept out of senior Cabinet positions and even kind of more senior ministerial roles because they, they don't want... May doesn't want them to be a threat to herself in a couple of years' time, such as Dominic Rabb, who is a uh, he's a Brexiteer. Then you've got Tom Duggenhart, you've got Rishi Sunak, who replaced William Hague's seat in Richmond, North Yorkshire. These are all meant to be kind of bright young things who could really get their teeth into some of these kind of problems, give them a housing brief, but actually they've not they they still way clear of cabinet because May won't promote them. Okay, I'm not having Dominic Rabb though. Wow. He's, a, he's a terrier. Is he? Yeah. There's too many A's in his surname by the time. Raw. Um, right, we'll move on. We need to do Trump, otherwise we're not going to... Tales from Trump, then. Yeah. So we've got... How do you even do this in a normal way? So we've got a number of... Oh, my words. We need to take it in turns, happening. don't we? There's so much. The question... Is the question, do they really matter? Rather than anything else. So number one, we have two adult stars. Both of appear to have had rush money paid to them to be quiet. One of them is being less quiet and he's doing interviews. And um, another one has just settled and can now talk, I think, about their... They're, they're, so, Stormy Daniels, I can't remember the name of the other woman, but she um, was is a former Playboy model and had allegedly an affair right. with Donald Trump and has now found out in court that she's going to be able to, to talk about that. Okay. But the Stormy Daniels thing, in a nutshell, is that Donald Trump allegedly had intimate relations with Ms. Daniels back in the mid mid 2000s and was mid-noughties. paid mid noughties well uh, and was paid uh, again allegedly was paid $130,000 in hush money by Trump's personal lawyer they keep saying personal lawyer as if they were the yeah, like an impersonal lawyer um, who's then paid that money by um, Cohen well, is it Michael Cohen Michael, Michael Cohen, Cohen. Yeah. Michael Cohen t- t- Trump's personal lawyer to um to not talk about that. Now, incident. Michael Cohen has now had his offices raided by the FBI. Yes, correct. And he's had lots of documents that pertain to various things um, seized. And Donald Trump tweeted, Attorney client privilege is dead! Because he was very upset about this. But obviously, he, there, was, there was no collusion, so he has no reason to be upset about it. Um, so, but Michael Cohen's got quite a checkered past of uh, involvement with various New York mobsters. Yes. But the, so the, the other one of the other interesting things that came out, that out during it, they said that they have to, that Michael Cohen had to reveal who his other clients were in his in his book, and one of them is Fox News um, stalwart um, Sean Hannity, who is vociferously pro-Trump and appeared in a Trump campaign advert during the 2016 general mm-hmm. election. So it, it feels like there's a lot of stuff going on, and there's a lot of potential corrupt practice. Um, you need. You almost. We almost need to be two years down the line, don't we, to be able to put any of this into kind of context? Because there's so much going on. It reminds me of. Um, there's an absolutely magnificent podcast called Slow Burn, which is about Watergate, and he tells the Watergate story not 
as it is from a historian's point of view, but as it happens. So it's week by week, it unfolds the events. And what's really interesting is that there's loads of events that happen in that appear to be unconnected. And at the time, people didn't piece those things together. Mm. But of course, now, when you look at Watergate, you see those events as if it all makes sense. But it didn't make sense at the time. And I feel like this with this, you know, you've got all these things going on. You mentioned before, Mike, about the doorman at Trump Tower who apparently allegedly been paid. Say allegedly, like Trump listening. You sort of think that he might try and sue us. Yeah. Why not? Is that Why not? Didn't it? they get one of his friends in a, what, I can't which newspaper it was, bought the story so he couldn't again go and National, tell it. it. It was the National Enquirer, that That's kind right. of that kind of rumour mongering. And then he got sacked. I mean, there's loads here. Look at this list. We've got the Comey book, A Higher Loyalty, uh, has just come out. He's done interviews on Newsnight last night saying that no one can control Trump. You've got the the fire in the Trump Tower, which a tenant died. And he, d- and he tweeted about how safe it was without reference to the person who died. Uh, he then tweeted, I've never fired Comey over Russia, despite saying in an interview last year, I fired Comey over Russia. There's always a tweet. There's the mission accomplished yeah. tweet, which obviously is a, a link to George Bush mission accomplished in Iraq. which He's also got his, um, his environmental protection agency uh, head, Scott Pruitt, who is lavishly spending lots and lots of taxpayers' money on whatever uh, he wants. And other people in his cabinet have already been fired or had to resign their office because of their spending. There was one last year, I can't remember who was there. So many people have been fired that I can't keep track. Everything but, we've mentioned is just in the last two weeks. And these are the sorts of things that in a normal presidency would lead to a significant dent in popularity. I wonder if because there's so much Trump supporters think, well, it's got to be false because they're just they're just throwing anything at him. Mm. I, think, I wonder if, if there were one thing, if it would actually dent his popularity, but because there's because there's so it's almost too much for people to comprehend and too much for people to compute that they just go oh it's fake news. Well, yeah. I, I think there's a couple of things here, isn't there? You, there's so much it just becomes normal and it becomes mm. draining and it's very easy just to become quite blasé about it and not treat it with the seriousness which it kind of deserves. Yeah, um, there's a few times even in that list there where I sort of laughed a little bit and I thought oh hang on, we probably don't know if that's funny. Right, and I'm, then there's a there is a danger that if you get that, tr- that Trump just says to his supporters, look, this is fake news, it's the establishment, they're out to get me. Yeah. And, and that's actually, very easy, that's easy to believe. And if you have a, a scenario where, say, the Democrats do win the House and the Senate in the midterms and they try to start impeachment proceedings, for example, that could be really quite dangerous for American politics because it could become more divisive. It's, it's More divisive. It, it Maybe, actually, to defi- you, the focus should be for the Democrats to defeat them at the ballot box in well, 2020. Well, the, um, we'll have to finish up in a moment, but the, the New York Times magazine has pointed out, in the wake of just all of these things that we just mentioned, that his support amongst white working-class people, uh, white people without a college degree, remains really, really strong. So he had support of two-thirds of whites without a college degree in 2016. Now, it has dropped a little bit, but basically, in, in their opinion polling, they found that um, those voters still preferred Republican Democrats to Democrat candidates by an average of 13 percentage points. In, in other words, you're, what you're saying, all of this is just noise. Yeah. And um, those people and, uh, dismissing it, not listening to it. And, of course, the, um, the uh, uh, ethnic minority communities... And the liberal intelligentsia think all of this is a disgrace, but they won't vote. I would, I would, I would point out though that you know, there's a story from yesterday, which is that the Pittsburgh police have been drawing in, um, uh, have been preparing their riot gear in the event that the, that Robert M- Mueller 
the yeah. who's running the Russia inquiry is fired. So they're prepared for riots if that happens. And in that article, there is a, a there's some data about the level of support amongst Americans for the Mueller Russia inquiry probe. And amongst Democrats, as you'd expect, about 90% of them are in favour of it and about 5% are against. Amongst independent voters, about 70% of them are in favour of it and about 25% are against. Amongst Republicans, about 50% are opposed, but about 42% are in favour of the, of the Mueller probe. So what I would suggest is there's still, of the Republican Party and of Repu- the Republican base, there, are, there is still a lot of them who are supportive of democratic norms and are supportive of that thing. And what I would suggest is that Donald Trump will probably face a relatively significant primary challenge yeah. um, when he comes for his bid for re-election. And that could actually dent the Republican Party more than all of this. Yeah. So in, actually, in that actuality, that will probably show the split in the party more than anything else. So the Republican Party is still quite sp- split between people who are just like, no, Trump's great, everything's fine. Yeah. And people who think, uh, you know, let's call them... The uh, the Jeff Flake or Mitt Romney kind of yeah. type people who are a, bit, a bit more sceptical. The Trumpification of the party continues, doesn't it? Because Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, who has obviously had to work with Trump but has not been a Trump fan, has gone. So they're going to have a new speaker. We'll have a new uh, Trump speaker of the speaker. House. If the Republican leader, if, if the Republicans win the House, it'll be mm-hmm. a Trumpy. Yeah. If the Republicans lose the House, you would still imagine the Republican leader in the House would still be a. Trump, a Trumpite. A Trumpster. I do okay. think there's one of all these things that have happened, I think it's one that really stands out, and it's the Michael Cohen raid. He is someone who knows everything about he's, he's a, a fi- personal liar. He, he's a fi- he's a Not fixer. He's a fixer, isn't he? And the Trump administration or the Trump business has been doing in the last ten years they've been trying to build towers in all, in some very dodgy countries Trump Tower, Panama, Trump Tower, Russia, Trump Tower, Indonesia. And some of these towers haven't actually Come on been the trip 2018. <laughs> 2020. haven't actually been built, and mm-hmm. it screams of money laundering and corruption. And allegedly, I was going to say allegedly. So that's good enough. Leave that. Yeah. So I've asked to my personal and, and lawyer. The, and to, the, other, uh, the final thing, I mean, I know we need to finish up, but the, fi- the other thing that stands out for me is, is Comey because he is, let's be clear, a respected public official. Um, and he's six foot eight, yeah. And he's, he's a respected public official who, is, who has said that he's worked with three presidents. He's worked with George W. Bush, he's worked with Barack Obama, and he's worked with Donald Trump. And that both George W. Bush and Barack Obama, whilst of different parties, had the temperament and, na- and, and nature of a president, and that he called Donald Trump morally unfit to be president of the United States. Both. On that bombshell. If only we knew that. If only we knew that. Yeah, if, there was a hint. if only there was some sort of hint of that. Good. That was fun. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.